Uh, quick update. Um, <clears throat> been waiting to be able to say this. Finally got the demolition permit back. So, um, yeah, which is really the first key now. You know, the last thing is just getting through the city, having the city's final approval on the permits, and then the construction people, all the materials, so that uh, the construction can start. Once construction starts in the building, it won't take very long. Winter won't be an issue because it's all indoor work, and none of it really is load-bearing uh, stuff. It's all just internal, you know, having to do the build-out. So uh, the first step in that is the demolition. Have the demolition permit in hand. Uh, the projection is um, the very first week of November. So we're about two and a half weeks or so from that starting. We'll have a crew there that films that so that I can show you. And then um, as we're making progress, uh, I just felt like what we'll do is just take a few pictures and a few videos and maybe take 30 seconds or a minute and then each of the, you know, uh, the services just to show what's going on. Once it starts, it'll go really, it'll go fast and I'll be able to show you, you know, that'll be the exciting part. The worst part of it, honestly, the whole thing for me has been the waiting part in between. You know, the, you do all the, the beginning part of it, the hard push to get it off the ground and to get going and to find the place and you're raising that first part of money and, you know, and then the building just sits forever as all the, um, the bureaucrats. If you're a bureaucrat, we love you. But I have a problem with how that all works, to be honest with you. And so um, once the bureaucratic shuffle, how about that? Is that a good term for it? Is done. Then, of course, everything can go forward. So uh, keep praying, please. That's the, that's the main thing. Materials, um, as I'm sure you all have seen uh, or read, um, you know, we've got materials are, are here, but where are they here? Are they sitting in a port? Uh, are they actually still on a ship, you know, off the, off the coast? Um, there's just, it's just one of those really crazy, funny times that we're, we're in right now. But in the meantime, we're doing good, aren't we? Everything's fine and appreciate you guys being here this morning, your patience, just, um, you know, really riding with us through this time. It's important. I think more than ever, I'm just convinced that God's purposes during this time is to bring the church closer too. Of course, we'll appreciate that building more than ever coming from here and going into there. But I think it's good to give us a chance to, to just know each other a little bit better and to have that, uh, that connection. So really appreciative of that. And so the next, the next thing should be showing you some video that first week of November uh, on the demolition. Then the construction will start shortly after that. Okay, uh, we begin a new series today. And it's titled, The Unexpected Words of Jesus. Um, so there's different ideas that we had with this. We thought, should we do the hard sayings of Jesus? Which is interesting. I'm going to reserve that one. Maybe we'll do it at some time. Only because when we think of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus uh, around the miracles and the really profound things he said, and, and, and rightfully so, those are wonderful things to teach on. But Jesus also said some things that at times can be confusing. And at times they're, they're almost shocking because it doesn't fit the God that we think we know, right? We think of Jesus as just, you know, he's always merciful and he's always loving, and he is. But how about this? Jesus is always truthful too. Jesus was not weak. Jesus was not a wimp. Jesus was strong. And Jesus could be confrontational at the same time while he's being loving, 
And so when you look at that side of Jesus, there's so much interesting to teach on. But we landed on the idea of teaching on the unexpected words of Jesus. And today is going to deal with the idea of forgiveness. So that's the question that I would ask to begin. Have you ever had trouble forgiving somebody? Maybe you have to search your brain real quick like, let me think about that. Good for you if you can't think of something right off the bat. Good for you. I hope you are a good forgiver. I remember years and years ago, I got an invitation to go uh, and teach um, at at Billy Graham's um, place in Asheville, North Carolina. It's a beautiful piece of property that he has, and it it was a lot of fun. But there's this museum you can walk through that shows his life, all the presidents that he interacted with, just his ministry. You know, the 50-plus years of ministry was incredible. But there was a saying by his wife, Ruth, that stuck with me more than anything else. And she was talking about how they had such a successful marriage. And she said that a good marriage is made up of two good forgivers. You agree with that statement right there? Being able to forgive. I just saw a wife nudge her husband like that. It was awesome. I wish you could stand up here and see what I see sometimes. <laughs> Facial expressions. People that think that they're like getting away with I just won't respond to him. That's how I know that you're actually dealing with it. But back to the question, have you ever had trouble forgiving something? It's a legitimate question. Sometimes when I ask that question, there are things that people are dealing with that are just not simply as easily as like, hey, I, I can just let that go. Sometimes things unfold in a process God, of course, is working in that process, but the enemy is also trying to mess up that process, and things can take a long time. Sometimes they can be easy, but sometimes they can take a long time. I remember one when I was preparing the message. This is one that from time to time, I think I've forgiven this person, but from time to time it still comes back, and I have to still say out loud, all these years later, I forgive that person. How many of you know that forgiveness sometimes is a process, not just a moment in time? I believe there is a moment where you say, I forgive, but then there's the process of actually getting it out of your heart, or how about this, not letting it come back into your heart. So this goes back to Chris and I, Amy and Brent were little, we didn't have Kate, David and Daniel yet, we were here in Denver, and um, I've told the story the last couple of weeks involving Pastor Terry's ministry with my ministry and how those two things Uh, came into being and how Terry was so instrumental in helping Chris and I move into ministry. And Terry was our youth pastor. And at the time, I was working in a car leasing. Leasing became a really big thing at that time. And I thought, hey, this is going to be a good direction for me to go. So we got involved in this leasing operation. And man, I was working all the time. And Chris really was raising two little babies at home. And the Lord, in a tremendously incredible, undeniable way, confronted us with a call that was on our lives, a call that had happened when we were both teenagers before we met each other, a call to ministry. And the Lord just really brought us back to that place. And I went to Terry not knowing, how do I move from where I am? A husband, a father, in a job that's necessary to keep the wheels turning, paying for a mortgage, making sure that my family ate, making sure that we were moving forward. How do I move from that spot into doing what I think the Lord is calling me to, vocational ministry. We all have ministry. God's called all of us to ministry. You know that, right? But some are called to vocational ministry, and I knew I was called to that, but I didn't know how to make that transition from where I was into vocational ministry. So I went to Terry, who was my youth pastor, and I just laid out the whole thing, and I've joked about how Terry gave me the litmus test of ministry. 
He said, come with me down the hallway, opened the door, pushed me into a group of 12 junior hires, slammed the door, held it closed so I couldn't get out, and said, if you survive this, we'll believe that you're called. That's a little bit untrue. There's still a couple of those kids from those days who go to our church right now. One of them walked up to me last week and had a picture from over 30 years ago when I was first, I wasn't even a paid, I was just volunteering, showed me a picture of doing an activity with a bunch of junior hires. Man, I looked at that young guy and thought, if I could go back in time, what I would tell him. (laughs) But Terry was instrumental in that time and he just helped us figure out, okay, here's how you go from here to here. You can't do it overnight. You have to do it incrementally and in steps. And it was really interesting. One of the things that came about is that I needed to leave the job that I was in in order to move into the job that I wanted to. And that was not an easy transition. In fact, to do it, I had to do two jobs. I had to do the one I was getting paid for, and then I had to volunteer for the one that I wanted. And as I began to do this one more and more and this one less and less, there came that moment in time where it was like you have to step across this threshold and there's no going back. It's an all or nothing proposition at this point. And so I stepped across, I quit my job, looking forward into this. And the Lord, he miraculously moved. We were going to leave here and go to Baton Rouge. In Baton Rouge was a Bible college and a ministry that we were going to be involved with that Terry had helped us figure out how to get there. In the meantime, though, from leaving that job and leasing to being able to move to Baton Rouge, I needed to pay off some debt. I needed to make a certain amount of money to make this happen. And so there was a guy that I went to work for that hung gutters on houses, seamless gutters. It was becoming a big thing in Denver. And he just needed a laborer. And I just needed to make some money. So I went to work for this guy, and this is what he told me. He said, John, our business is really big in the summertime. And if you can work for me coming through the summer for a reduced rate, when we get to the fall, I'll give you a big bonus before you leave to go to Bible college and to do ministry. I see some of you shaking your heads. You're already ahead of me in the story, aren't you? You know where it's going. So I worked, man, and I worked hard for this guy. I worked for a reduced rate. Chris and I had to make a decision. We got out of our house and we moved into the basement of my mom's house, an unfinished basement with two little kids, and we lived like that for a long time in order to facilitate where we were going. It's called provision for the vision, right? You make sacrifices. We were doing that and trying to figure out how to do this, and I'm working for this guy, and the hours were ridiculous, and the work was really hard, but I knew what it was going to do for us. So we went all the way through the spring and the summer. We get to the fall. It's time for us to leave, and I go to the guy's house to get the bonus that he owed me, right? It was all overtime, really, that he owed me. And the guy looked at me, and he said, I've got bad news for you. I can't pay you. Oh, you imagine Can you put yourself there for just a moment? Got a moving, not a truck, but a. uh, before they had pods, I found this company that just dropped off the back end of a truck and you just filled it up and then they came and picked it up and drove it to your destination. They had dropped that off at my house and we needed to fill it up. And when he came to pick it up, I had to pay him for it and now I don't have the money to pay him to move our stuff. I don't have the money that it's going to take to rent a place when we get to Baton Rouge. I don't have the money it's going to take to buy groceries when we get there. And I don't know what to do. I was heartbroken. I was so mad at that guy. Part of me wanted to fight that guy. You ever been there? Be honest with me. You have either been there or you are that guy. 
Maybe that's why you're afraid to say, yes, I, you're that guy. You're holding somebody's money. Give it to them. Oh, I was so hurt. I was so mad. Worst thing about it is he went to our church. And he knew what I was trying to do. You know who I'm talking about. I want to say his name right now so bad. <laughs> it's still, it wants to come back and get in my heart. And I had to make this, for, you know, this is a decision. Am I going to forgive this guy? And it was just, it was, you know what it really was? When the word tells us that God can use all things to do good, it was my very first lesson that people aren't your source. God has to be your source. It was my very first lesson. But listen to me. The cost of that lesson is that you have to be willing to let what people have done go in order to grab what God's done for you. And I had to make this really tough decision. Who's my source? Now, let me fast forward in the story real quickly, and then I'll finish it at the end of the message. My father-in-law, Gary Hilgers. <laughs> what a dad that guy's been to me. My father-in-law knew what had happened to me and came, reached into his pocket, gave me a bunch of cash that this other guy owed me. He said, don't tell the other kids. Sorry, Dad. I think enough time's gone by now. My father-in-law stepped in. And I've seen the Lord do that so many times. But the biggest thing was forgiving this guy. Forgiving this guy. How would you do in that situation? Maybe yours isn't something that's kind of like that. But has there been a betrayal in your life that's difficult? Has there been a divorce? Has there been a failure? Has there been a parent that's done something to you? Has there been something that happened that somebody owed you something or needed to do something for you? Something you were counting on or believing in? Maybe it's ministry. Maybe you've had a pastor that's hurt you. Years and years ago when we started the church, um, I had this time when it started growing rapidly, I realized some of our growth was coming from people who didn't know the Lord or who were disenfranchised, but some of our growth was coming from people who were coming from other churches. And they weren't coming because of good reasons. They were coming because they had been hurt. And I remember I had this large group of people suddenly who had been hurt by pastors. And you know what's funny about that? They don't come innocent into the new church. They come with baggage. We all have baggage. Agree? We all have baggage. One of the things I would teach in the very beginning of our church is when you come here, leave the baggage at the door. And I just did this real simple test. I said, how many of you have been hurt by a pastor? Man, an incredible amount of people raised their hands. And then for the pastors I had in the room, I said, how many of you pastors have been hurt by people? And all of the pastors raised their hands. Hurt people hurt people. It's endemic. Understanding that and then knowing how to handle that and move forward is really important to how you handle your Christianity, how you handle life. Coming back to this idea of the unexpected words of Jesus, let me read to you some of the most unexpected words you'll find in Scripture. Um, this is Matthew 18. We're going to start at 35. This is kind of the payoff verse, and then we're going to back up and look what comes in front of that. So here's the unexpected words 
that's what my heavenly Father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. So what is it that God will do to us? Well, that's the story in the first part of Matthew. This is Matthew 18, 23 through 34, and I think these are unexpected words because this is not the God that I think of when I think of my Heavenly Father and when I think of Jesus. But look at these really strong words. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with his servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. The point here is simply that this guy owes more than he can ever pay. He couldn't pay it, so his master ordered that he be sold, along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me, and I will pay it all. How many of you know that's not true? This guy cannot pay back. Then his master was filled with pity, mercy, grace for him and released him and forgave his debt. It's powerful. When the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. And the point of this is that what he's been forgiven is far more than what he's being asked to forgive. So a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars and he grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. And his fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay it. It's the identical words. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested, put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said to him, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Unexpected words from Jesus, yes or no? Driving over here today, I felt like the Lord said this to me. One of the ways you know you're creating a God in your image is when you have to change scripture to fit your circumstance rather than letting your circumstance be changed by scripture. We do that in life today crazy, when it comes to morality. We live in a day where it's not the world that's only changing morality. People in the church are changing their morality in order to fit, changing the scriptures in order to fit their morality. A few months ago, I did a, I mean, an innocuous message on morality when it came to the issue today of what's being taught to children. And if you were in that message, I showed, <laughs> uh, what, what was that? That was, what was it? Blue's Clues. Sorry, I'm 57, not three. <laughs> I showed a Blue's Clues. And the Blue's Clues, they did a song and by the way, it's played on television right now. You can find it. It's on YouTube. But it was a song dealing with the whole LGBT issue. Teaching this to two and three-year-olds. Here's all I said. I said, my argument today is not the right or wrong of that issue. My argument today is this, this shouldn't be taught to two and three-year-olds. There's an agenda here. And if you can't see the agenda, you're blind to your own agenda. 
That's all I said. I showed that video and that's all I said. I even was so careful to say that today my argument is not whether this is right or wrong. My argument for today is just that this shouldn't be shown to kids, especially to parents who are unaware. You could not believe the email I got from people in church suggesting to me a rewrite and a reread and a re-understanding of what the scriptures actually mean when it comes to homosexuality, what the scriptures actually mean when it comes to the idea of transgender. And I didn't say anything. I had people that left, actually. People suggesting to me a rewrite, a reread. I'm going to say one more time, look at me. You know you're creating a God in your own image when you're changing the scriptures to fit your morality rather than letting the scriptures change your morality. And by the way, I'm not trying to be scary or negative or ugly. I'm just going to say to you, guys, we're living in a day where more and more and more churches will go along with culture rather than standing up against culture. The Bible actually says in 2 Timothy, we're living in a day when people will heap teachers to themselves who will say things that tickle their ears rather than things that might be offensive in order to cause them to say, am I thinking the right way? Am I going the right way? Because someday you will face a God who might say the unexpected to you. Did you hear what I said? I don't say these things like bravado. I say them with fear and trembling. Listen to me. I'm a pastor who loves people. I'm not a bully. I don't think I'm a paragon to stand up and go, hey, here's right and here's wrong. I'm basing it on what the scriptures say. That's where I'm trying to come from. Hear my heart in this issue. Unexpected words of Jesus. What I think is unexpected about these words, if you're doing the online notes and you want the fill in the blanks, let me just give you these real quick. Number one, it's unexpected because all the way through the Old Testament, we've been taught an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Let me read that to you. Uh, That's found. Do you have that? This is Matthew 5, 38 and 39. You have heard that the law, you've heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. All through the Old Testament, that was the way that it was. But Jesus is changing it. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. And if someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. Does that not just completely go the opposite of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? So when I read these unexpected words all along, the whole idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, if someone does you wrong, do them wrong. If someone cheats you, cheat them back. If someone takes from you, take... Here's the problem with an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Eventually, the entire world will be toothless and blind. So here's the thought. Did God change his mind? Because when I read the Old Testament... One of the things that it seems to me is that it was kind of an even Stephen, but I think it's a deeper issue than that. Here's what I think it represents. The Old Testament is all pointing to the necessity of Jesus. So in the Old Testament, when you have a wrong, you don't have the ability for the wrong to have been taken care of by someone else. There has to be the ability just to keep it even. But Jesus comes and dies for all of those wrongs. 
Everything you did and everything that's been done to you, Jesus took upon himself and made it possible for it all to be paid for on the cross. So that if you experience God's real grace, that he forgave you far more than what someone's ever done to you. If you really could experience that and really get that in your head, and this is where people trip up when it comes to forgiveness. They think, you just don't know what was done to me. You don't know how terrible it was, how bad it was. Pastor, it wasn't just someone who owed me a couple of thousand dollars. It wasn't someone who just said one thing and did another. I had someone who betrayed me at the, at the, the most crucial unbelievable, incredibly ugly time in my life. Someone that I gave everything to. Someone that I gave my heart to. Someone that I gave my checkbook to. Someone that I gave everything to. And they betrayed me. And you want me to let it go? And I'm trying to say to you, listen to me. It's not about just letting it go. It's about understanding that what God has done for you is far more than what's been done to you. And you can know it up here in your head. How long have I said this? Peter, the distance from here to here is way more than 12 or 13 inches. For some people, getting it from their brain to their heart might be 50 years. To really experience, not just in your head that Jesus died for me, that Jesus forgave me, that Jesus has taken, but to really experience your need, look at me, for God's grace. It's one thing for you to know in your brain that you have God's grace, but it's another thing when you experience it personally. You want to know what real revival is? When you experience your need for mercy and you experience God's grace and mercy, it changes everything. If you're having trouble forgiving somebody, the answer is not in your ability to use your willpower to let someone go. The answer is to experience God's grace so that you have now a point of reference to be able to forgive somebody. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not enough to know in your brain what God's done for you. You must experience it in your heart. Jesus is the reset of the bar completely. Justice has been satisfied because of Jesus. So no longer is it an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It is. You can forgive from your heart. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn the other because that's what Jesus did for you. If someone spits at you, Smile at them because that's what Jesus did for you. Don't think of Jesus doing this 2,000 years ago for a bunch of Romans who didn't understand him. Look at me. You are that Roman. The Bible says we've all sinned. We've all gone our own way. It goes all the way back to the beginning of man. Adam and Eve aren't the ones who are at fault. You're Adam. You're Eve. You'd have done the same thing. Your fallen nature required that God had to come and die in order to restore us back to him. And if you get that, really get it, now you have a point of reference to be able to give it. You want to know how I know people are actually experiencing grace? They can give grace. And people who cannot give mercy are not really experiencing mercy. You get it in your head, but you're not experiencing it in your heart. Am I making any sense to you right now? It's the difference. Psalms 85.10. I love this scripture. This is actually quoted in the New Testament. Look at this. Unfailing love and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. What is this saying to us? God is righteous. He is peace. How do you bring those two things together? That's Jesus. And if you get what Jesus is and what Jesus has done, you too. There is a way for you to find justice and peace through Jesus so that you can give it to somebody else. Yeah. 
Here's the second one, if you want to fill in the blanks. Why are these unexpected words of Jesus? This is not a God that we can control. Matthew 10, 28. Look at these words. Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body. Where? That great five of us who were willing to read that out loud. Let's try that again. Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body. Where? Are those unexpected words? Yes or no? We love, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But we totally ignore this scripture right here that says, fear this God. Love him, respect him, but also understand God is not some little thing that you can control. When I was in sixth grade, we were living in Southern California at the time. So some good things can come from Southern California. (laughs) I had a sixth grade teacher. His name was Greg Webster. He was a believer. I found out years later he was a missionary's kid. And in our class, he would weave his his Jesus to us. And so he started this reading program. He was one of these teachers. Can you think back somewhere in your elementary, junior high, high school, college? Can you think of a teacher who changed your life? Can you? Can you really think of one? Maybe a third of you are raising your hands. I'm sorry if you never had a teacher. I hope you can say you have one now. Wow. I'm really sorry I said that, man. Like, I'm backing up from the edge. I almost went over right there. (laughs) His name was Greg Webster, and he took this unruly group of sixth graders and got us in a place where if we behaved ourselves, he would read to us for half an hour. And he read the Chronicles of Narnia. So in this school situation where you're not supposed to, he found a way to. And he would read the Chronicles of Narnia to us, and he would discipline us by not reading the Chronicles of Narnia. The whole class, we would take it out on anyone who messed up our Chronicles of Narnia. (laughs) Everybody, it was such, he, he never had to raise his voice. He'd just close the book and put it down, and everybody would be like, oh no. And we were so into that. I found him years later. I was doing a series on gratitude and honor. And I asked people in the church at that time, is there someone in your life who has done something really good for you that you have failed to actually honor? It's never too late if someone's alive to go back and honor them. Hear what I'm saying? Honor is huge. The Bible is full of honor. God honors us and we're to honor him. When you dishonor someone, you're taking something from them that can start a war. Honor. So I started looking one day. Can I find this teacher? And I found him. He had been retired for a long time. But he picks up the phone and I said, Mr. Webster, my name is John Leach. I couldn't get another word out of my mouth before he goes, I remember you, John. He said, you lived in Lakeside. I came to your house for dinner. 
He said, I took you for a drive. This is how long ago. He had a Triumph TR7. Can you remember that car? Yeah, I think it's, we're dating ourselves, right? Some of you are like, Triumph? What is that? So, crappy British car. Uh, <laughs> he, he, this is what he said to me. He said, I remember every one of my students. He asked me how my mom and dad were doing and said their names. I am not making this up. That's how good this guy was. And I just said, Mr. Webster, I just never got a chance to really tell you what a difference you made in my life. I said, you're never going to believe this, but I'm a pastor now. And all I told him about how many children I have and grandchildren. That's what he told me. He goes, I, I, I was a missionary's kid. I said, I realize now that you were a believer. The Chronicles of Narnia. I said, I, I've read those to my kids. I said, it was all because of you. You made such a tremendous... I said, by the way, you would have never known that was what going on in my personal life at that time. What was going on between my mom and my stepdad? I said, your class was a refuge for me. I could come there and find peace in a time that wasn't very peaceful. I'm so thankful for you, Mr. Webster. <laughs> he was not an emotional type of a guy. That's great, John. <laughs> One of the statements in Mr. Webster's book, in the Chronicles of Narnia, was this statement. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? Safe? Said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He is the king. Look at me real quick. Our God is wonderful, but he's not safe. He's God. He's not in some little box that you created that he jumps when you say jumps, lays down when you say lay down, rolls over when you say roll over. You haven't figured out how to pray the right prayer to get God to do everything that you want him to do. He is still God. He's the creator. You're the creation. He is infinite. You are finite. He is eternal, and you have a beginning and an end. He is God. And we create God in our own image when we try to make him human, where he somehow fits in this box and we can understand and control. Look at me, man, this God. <laughs> when it's all revealed, you are in awe, not going to have the words to say how awesome this God is, how powerful this God is, how strong this God is, and how loving this God is, but also how truthful this God is. He's a God of love and mercy and of justice and truth. He exists both of those things in equality at the same time. And it all comes together in the love of Jesus for you and I. What makes these words so unexpected is that this is not a God that we can control. He's a God that we have to respect and realize, man. We don't ever figure him out and then manipulate him. God is God. Years and years ago... I learned a cool lesson about how to look at God by becoming a grandfather. I think that many of us don't see God as father, we see him as grandfather. Here's the difference between a father and a grandfather. A father has to worry about how the kids turn out. A grandfather never thinks about that. A father has to discipline. 
A grandfather doesn't know that there is discipline. <laughs> a father doesn't want to spoil the kids. A grandfather exists to spoil those kids. A child and a grandfather get together in order to figure out how to conquer the parent. All of our kids <laughs> are a product of the day and the time. And so when it comes to the idea of sugar, they really try to limit the amount of sugar that those kids eat. Everything in my life is to subvert that issue. I keep snacks and treats. I take them over to Corner Bakery and I let them pick out the biggest cinnamon roll they want. I let them get chocolate milk. If they want two, they can have two. If they drink it, great. If they don't, great. I don't care. I just sit there and get them so hopped up and then take them back. <laughs> drop them off. Tell the parents, I have no idea why they're that way. They were fine when they were with me. It must be you. You must be the problem. <laughs> I buy them what they want, when they want, more than they want. <laughs> we went to the Rockies game the other night and it was um, Malachi's birthday. And uh, one of the uh, voices of the Rockies goes to church here with us. And so he was calling the game that night, obviously. And I had texted him and said, hey, we're going to be there. And he said, do you want to bring your grandson into the booth and let him be a part of it that way and have that experience. I said, you bet I do. So we took him in the booth and let him see the game from that window right there and took some pictures. But when we got done, we walked out and there's the store right there. And I said, Mal, do you have any Rocky stuff? He's like, no. I said, you are going to now. I outfitted that kid top to bottom with Rocky jerseys, Rocky baseball, Rock, anything he wants. He looks so good. <laughs> Just spoil him rotten. It's Lucy's third birthday today, and she's into pink. So what does Papa do? Where's pink today? Whatever those kids want, man. Okay, real quick. I'm having a good time and laughing and joking. But a lot of us think that God is like a grandfather. We forget that God calls himself our father. I was a completely different person raising my children than I am now spoiling my grandchildren. I discipline my children because I love them. Let me come to this side because I don't think you... I, look, John's already got his hand up in the air. Well done, John. Hitting his daughter, right? I disciplined my children because I love them. I didn't give them everything they wanted. I made sure that they grew up and grew up the right way. I made sure that they were going to be responsible. I made sure that they understood the value of something. With my grandchildren, no. That's not my job. And somehow we think that God is like that grandfather who will give us whatever we want, spoil us. And that is not the right picture of God. Yes or no? He is a father where the word says, whom he loves, he disciplines. And if you're producing fruit, he'll prune you to get more fruit out of you. There's the unexpected words of Jesus. It is a wow. Because this is not a God that we create in our own image. This is a God who says, I am. And you can either come around that, but I'm not going to come around and build 
around you. You will build around me. That's God. Do you get what I'm saying? Let me read this to you. This is Revelations 20, 11 through 15. And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and the sky fled from his presence and they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life. Listen. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead. And death and the grave gave up their dead. And all who were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into this lake of fire. Those are unexpected words. Pastor, go back to John 3.16. Pastor, find that verse. We're all blessed those who bless you and curse those who curse you. I want that. So do I. But you have to understand, he is mercy and he is truth all at one time. He is a rewarder and he is a judge. He is salvation and he is punishment. And we create a God in our own image and ignore the words that we don't like. And then we're shocked and surprised when the pastor stands up and reads those words. And we'll go home and have pastor for lunch today. <laughs> Give you the third one. It is what Jesus did for you and me. Here's John 3:16. For God so loved this world that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Everything that I said to you about the unexpected God, judgment, truth, all of those things, they are true. But here's the best part of the message. That if you believe and ask, he'll give it to you. You were not appointed for God's wrath. You were appointed for his mercy. And if you ask for mercy, you will receive mercy. That should not be an unexpected. Let me go back to that story real quickly and finish it up with the guy who owed me. <laughs> we left Colorado and went to Baton Rouge. And, you know, my father-in-law had done something really wonderful for me. We get to Baton Rouge. Gosh, we struggled like we had never struggled before. God was so faithful. I was trying to work a job. I've told the story at Orkin Pest Control. I was a termite inspector. If you'd have looked at my life right then and said, what are you trying to do? I'm going to be a pastor. Hmm. So I'm trying to go to Bible school. I'm trying to keep a full-time job. And I'm volunteering at a church that had just been planted. I didn't know if I was coming or I was going. And the worst thing was we were not being rewarded financially in any way. There were times we didn't have enough money for groceries. And Chris and I, we wouldn't stand up and tell anybody. We had an old couch. We would kneel in front of that couch and we would cry. And we would tell the Lord. 
Someone would bring us a bag of groceries. Letting this guy go so that I could figure out who my source was became important later on when God was showing me over and over again, I'll supply all of your needs. It wasn't the way that I thought. I thought that meant he'll send me a great big check in the mail and then I can go buy all of the things that I have need of. But he would touch someone's heart. Gosh, it was humbling. But all these years later, it made me the guy who still believes that God will meet all of my needs. There's an audacity that comes from not knowing that I can get people to do anything. I just don't believe that. But I know that my God will bring about this building and all the needs that are in it. Our God will sustain us while we're in this place right now. Everything that I lack when I'm teaching, my God is able to supply all of your needs and to make this more than enough. That's this God. Yeah, that's this God. So I preach this side of God that we don't like to talk about and then we act like it's unexpected, but it's not. The Bible, Jesus is clear on all these issues, but the best part of it is this grace that God offers. It's available today. So my little deal with this guy with the gutters, I know that the Lord wants me to forgive him. So I would say the words, I forgive. I forgive. Sometimes I would say it like 50 times a day. I forgive. Years would go by. God had done all these great things for me, but I would still go back to that time. Wait a minute, I forgive. So we come back to Denver through these really crazy events. We go to Lakeland, Florida. We go to Lexington, Kentucky. We end up back in Colorado, which was our heart's desire in northern Colorado. I'm a youth pastor now, being paid at an awesome church. God did all, it all looks now smooth and good because God makes straight lines with crooked sticks. Listen to this. So I take a group of kids to Elitch's. And I'm standing in line for the roller coaster. And you know how the line goes back and forth. It snakes. Right across from me is that dude that didn't pay me. Oh my gosh. In my head, I thought of all the things I wanted to say. Hey, remember that money you owed me? Well, God made it right even though you didn't. All the things that I wanted to say. And then I thought, I'll just ignore him. I'll just turn my back and ignore him. I'll make him come to me. And the whole time the Lord is like, think of all the things I've done for you, John. You're, you're going to trade 2,500 bucks for... You're right. So I finally just acted like, oh, I didn't see you. <laughs> I had been burning, just burning. How are you? Gave the guy a hug. In that process, he never brought it up. I don't think he ever thought about it twice, to be honest with you. Maybe he did, maybe he did. I don't know. I did. But in that moment of time, being able to really let it go so that you don't talk about it. The only reason I'm even talking about it today is I'm just that. You ever been in that place? What God has done for me is a million times more than what that guy ever did to me. And it would be that silly of me trading all of God's grace for $2,500 because I won't let this guy go. How stupid would that be? 
And if you can see your situation, that what God has done for you is far more than what's been done to you. And that's why I'm saying it's not enough that in your head you realize Jesus died for you. You must experience this in your heart. Because how do I know you really get grace? You can give grace. How do I know you get forgiveness? You can give forgiveness. And maybe the way to end this is just simply to say, I recognize that you might go, Pastor, it's just too much. Are you willing to be made willing? Are you willing to be made willing? So Isaac asked me right before the start of the service, he said, when you end it, how are we going to end it? And I said, well, when we get there, I'll figure it out. I'm not sure. <laughs> he said, do you want me to play keys? And I said, yeah, I'm just not sure how we'll, we'll go. So I think to pray and to give God a chance to maybe reconcile some things in our heart would be really appropriate. So you pray with me. Father, so many times we get hung up on the thing. The thing that happened to us. The thing that should have happened for us. We think in our minds if this thing hadn't happened or if this thing would have happened, then everything else would have worked out. And the truth of the matter is, God can take all of those things and can work them for good in your life. And I don't want to stand up here and be like, hey, what happened to you was little and what God did for you was big, so just reconcile that and then you'll be okay. I really want to get you to the point that if in your heart... In your head you know, but in your heart you're not experiencing it. That's what needs to happen. I don't want you to use your willpower today because your willpower will fail you. It's important to make a decision for sure. It's important to make a choice. Yep. But this isn't about like ascending to something with your mind. This is experiencing something in your heart. To not just know in your brain that God has given you mercy, but to recognize your great need for His mercy and then to experience His forgiveness, experience His love, experience that He made the way possible. And so I'm just going to kind of attack this thing from that point right there. So listen to what I'm saying. This is going to get real narrow. If you're having trouble in your heart, not forgiving somebody, but for experiencing God's great grace, not that you don't know it with your mind, but you have trouble experiencing it in your heart, I believe that's where the Holy Spirit wants to make this real in your life. So, the reason that I had everybody bow their head and close their eyes, I'm trying to facilitate something between you and the Father right now. Something where the Holy Spirit can just work in that place right there. And just like I said, if you aren't willing, are you willing to be made willing? That's really important. So I just want you to be honest. I am going to ask you to raise your hand. 
only because it's a place of faith. I'm not going to make you stand. I'm not going to make you go do anything. I just want you to get real right now. If this is important to you, if you get what I'm saying, you got it in your brain. In your mind you understand it, but it's not being experienced in your heart. You say, Pastor John, that's, that's what I need God to do for me. Pray for me today. I need that thing to happen. If that's you, just raise your hand right now. So, Pastor, pray for me. So, there's many, many, many of us. I knew, I knew, I knew this is what the Lord wanted me to go after. You can put your hands back down. It is so easy for us to turn messages into things that we can control. Okay, I want you to say out loud, I forgive this person. That's all good and fine, but unless it happens in your heart, the words fall so short and you find yourself wrestling with that thing over and over and over again. Father, every heart in this place, the ones who raise their hands and the ones who are stuck right now and cannot raise their hands, would you be merciful to us in a new way? Would your mercy create a channel between what Jesus has done our understanding of it in our minds, but our experiencing it in our hearts. God, would you cause every heart to come into a place of fully experiencing their need and how you satisfy that need? Would you cause all of us to see ourselves in that story, not as a person who's holding another one, for what they owe us, but as the person who's been forgiving far more than we could ever pay back. Make that real to us. Make that tangible to us. God, break our hearts with your mercy. Church, did you hear me? God, break our hearts with your mercy. Break our hearts with your mercy. Satisfy our needs, God, with your goodness. God, bring about a personal revival of us seeing how good you are to us every day, all the time. Maybe the most unexpected words would be, I saw my great need and I saw how my God met that need and loved me. God, do that so that we can give that. Let us experience it so that we can then be people who let other people experience it. God, thank you for your goodness this morning. Father, I know it's a process, but start right now. Open our hearts, God. Protect them. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Thank you, church. Let's